service. Hey guys, hope you're digging this new season of Badlands. I'm excited for you to hear this episode on legendary director John Huston, uh, but here also to remind you that over in the Disgraceland feed, we're counting down our 10 favorite Halloween episodes with stories on Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Big Lurch, The Misfits, Robert Johnson, and more. So head over to the Disgraceland feed and check those out. All right, enjoy John Huston in this wild tale from Hollywoodland. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about director John Huston are insane. He was made an honorary lieutenant in the Mexican army. He was nearly shot during a poker game. It was challenged to a duel in broad daylight. While driving his car down Sunset Boulevard, he hit and killed a woman who stepped into the road. He went to London to lay low, but soon found himself with no job, no money, and no prospects, and no choice but to live on the streets and beg for change. All of this happened, though, long before John Huston made great films, classic films, films full of adventure, suspense, and most importantly, great storytelling. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Banda de Policia de Mexico performing Viva Mexico in 1907. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from George Kikor's Dinner at Eight. And why would I play you that specific slice of pre-code cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 25th, 1933. And that was the day that John Huston's life was changed forever when he struck and killed a pedestrian in the middle of Hollywood. On this episode, the Mexican army, poker games and duels, a fatal car accident, pre-code cheese, and John Huston. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 9, Hollywoodland. Las Coletas looked like paradise. A beach of pristine white sand, deep blue ocean on one side, emerald green jungle on the other. But even paradise comes with a few caveats. It hadn't rained in months, and there was no running water. And the only way to access this beach was by boat. It was a solid day's trip from anywhere. And that suited John Houston just fine. Had for about 10 years. Living here on the idyllic edge of nowhere was the kind of adventurous lifestyle you'd find in a classic Hollywood movie like The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, or The African Queen. Movies that are all-time Hall of Famers. Movies that made John Huston one of the most successful screenwriters and directors of the 20th century. Las Coletas was also a potentially dangerous locale for a man of John Huston's advanced age and poor health. It was 1985, he was 79 years old. His emphysema was bad, so bad 
that every step he took felt like he'd run a marathon. But John Houston was tough as hell. And the idea of being far from civilization in the case of an emergency, it didn't faze him. Shit, his own father, the actor Walter Houston, had a heart attack smack dab in the middle of civilization at the Beverly Hills Hotel, for Christ's sakes, and he was dead before the ambulance ever got there. Fuck proximity, and fuck Beverly Hills. John Houston may have worked in the Hollywood system, but he avoided the Hollywood social system like the plague. America was no better. The anti-communist hysteria of the mid-century was absolute stupidity to John Houston. He revoked his citizenship. He shot his films in France and Africa, took up residency in Ireland. And now, here on the Mexican coast, he'd take peace and quiet over ego and greed any day. And when it came down to it, when the rubber met the road and the shit hit the fan, it didn't matter where you were on the map. To John Houston's estimation, all that mattered was luck. Both kinds. Mexico had good luck in spades. It was good to him now, and what he knew would be the last years of his life. And it was good to him nearly 60 years earlier, 400 miles due east, all the way to Mexico City. In 1926, John Houston was 20 years old. The money had long since run out, but he had everything else he needed. A roof over his head, three square meals a day, the best horses at his disposal, the best women too. All because the Colonel liked him. In fact, there wasn't a soldier in the Mexican army that didn't like him. And what wasn't the like about this big, tall, gregarious American who was drunk on adventure, gambling women in Mas Cerveza? He fit right in. This larger-than-life gringo south of the border with $500 from his father and an order from the doctor to take it easy. That ear infection of his had developed into something nasty. This being 1926 and all, before antibiotics and the subsequent surgery on his jaw needed time to heal. So John Houston took it easy like it was his fucking job. But once his body was healthy and the money was gone, John Houston's siesta moseyed on toward its inevitable conclusion which meant he'd need to get a real job. He could follow in his old man's footsteps and try his hand at showbiz. Being the son of Walter Houston did have its perks. But the Colonel didn't want him to go. The Colonel wanted to continue to give the American private horse dressage lessons. If money was an issue, the lessons would be free from now on. And John Houston didn't want another man's pity or his money. He politely declined. But there was no way he could decline the next carrot the Colonel dangled an honorary commission in the Mexican army. And so John Houston, 20 years old, jobless and penniless, became a temporary lieutenant in the Mexican armed forces. He rode horses with high-ranking colonels and generals, men who had fought their way through the revolution and lived to tell the tale. They drove fancy Pierce arrows through the center of town and fucked with down-on-their-luck peasants while passing open bottles of champagne amongst themselves. And they laughed as they stumbled into pools filled with naked women. And behind the closed doors of local brothels, they bit down hard on fragrant cigars and played poker. Tonight, the pot was muy grande. Coins and paper money flooded the table. Large bills printed with the face of the local bureaucrat's mistress. The cards were dealt. The players showed their hands, but the game wasn't over just yet. There was one more step. Just because you had the best cards didn't necessarily mean you got to walk away with all the cash. The lights in the room were suddenly switched off. Someone cocked a pistol and tossed it into the air. It was thrown hard enough that it hit the ceiling, and the gun went off. There was a flash of bright white, the sound of a bullet entering something, or someone. And then the lights came back on. 
At that point, either you collected what was owed to you, you anteed up for the next round, or you were dead. John Houston looked himself over. No blood, no bullet holes. He was still alive. He was lucky. That kind of luck makes a guy cocky. It massages your ego. It makes you feel invincible. That kind of luck eventually gets tested. And after a year in Mexico, young John Houston began to push his luck. He arrived at the agreed-upon spot early. He leaned against the tree along the Paseo de la Reforma, a street in the heart of Mexico City. The pistol was cold in his hand. He craned his neck around the tree to look for the man who was on his way to kill him. But John Houston wasn't planning on dying today. John Houston had other plans. He was gonna beat the devil at his own game. He looked at the watch on his wrist. Any minute now, Vanderberg would come walking up, just as planned. He would approach the building where they'd agreed to meet for an old-fashioned duel. But John would have the upper hand because Vanderberg had no idea that John was waiting to ambush him. And at just the right moment, John would jump out from behind this tree and shoot. Aim for the legs, shoot to wound, not to kill. He didn't need Vanderberg's blood on his hands. Alphonse de Vanderberg was a South African count who claimed he once seduced Matahari, the Dutch dancer who doubled as a spy for the Germans over the Spanish border into France, where she was executed. John Houston suspected it was just a lot of hot air. Vanderberg had hot air to spare. He was especially fond of hitting on the wife of one of John's American friends living in Mexico City. She was afraid to mention it to her husband for fear that he would blame her for the unwanted attention. She asked John to intervene. John pulled Vanderberg aside and told him to cut the shit and grow the fuck up. And that pissed Vanderberg off to no end. His pride was wounded. And if John Houston thought he could get away talking to a count like that, like hell he would, they'd settle it like gentlemen with guns. John Houston looked at his watch again. His pulse quickened. Wait, were those footsteps? Yes, footsteps. Vanderberg was approaching. John tightened his fingers around the pistol's grip. He raised it, closed one eye, and stared down the long barrel with the other eye to straighten his aim. The footsteps got louder. John wrapped his finger around the trigger. The footsteps rounded the corner of the building. The man came into view, but it wasn't Vanderberg. It wasn't even a man. It was John Houston's mother. She'd heard about the whole thing. Her son, a so-called soldier in the Mexican army, fucking off for months on end, engaged in some ridiculous contest to the death. No way, not her boy. She wasn't having it. She dragged his ass home before Vanderberg even showed his face. And John Houston's adventure was over. But his thirst for adventure could never be quenched. Back in the United States and no longer an honorary member of the Mexican army, John Houston attempted to settle into consistency and routine. He wrote articles for the New York Daily Graphic, which wasn't the Times, but it was a paycheck, and it allowed him to tell stories which came naturally. Thanks to his father, he wrote a script for a Hollywood movie, and he married his high school sweetheart, Dorothy. 
but settling down wasn't in John Houston's blood. Ever since he was a child, he lived like a nomad, dressing rooms and hotel rooms one town to the next, one separated parent to the other. And the lifestyle he cultivated during his year-long stint in Mexico was still coursing in his veins. He was restless. He craved adventure, real adventure. Sometimes that adventure was a couple of martinis in a drive down the Sunset Strip. Sometimes that adventure ended in a car wreck. The first time, he hit a parked car and spent the night in jail. The second time, he hit a tree, fast. His passenger, the actress, Zita Johan, was thrown forward on impact. Her face ate the windshield. And this accident made the papers because Zita Johan was in a movie with Boris Karloff and thus was way more famous than the guy behind the wheel, John Huston. John Huston was just the drunk son of a famous actor who made a bad choice. This accident also illuminated another kind of adventure John Huston enjoyed, seducing women who weren't his wife. Maybe Dorothy didn't know what was going on, and maybe she simply turned a blind eye, but when at last she walked in on her husband with another woman, it broke her. John Huston's split with Dorothy hit him hard. He did love her, but he also told himself he couldn't control himself when it came to other women. He busied himself by drinking more and by digging into his latest gig, writing a screenplay for a movie mogul, Daryl Zanuck, who had just left Warner Brothers to start his own production company, 20th Century Pictures. But Zanuck didn't like John's script for a new movie about P.T. Barnum. In fact, Zanuck hated it. So Zanuck fired John Huston. It was 1933. John Huston had lost both his wife and a major opportunity to write a major movie. He'd written somewhere around a dozen outlines, treatments, and scripts for Hollywood productions, but none of them led to a big payoff. Meanwhile, his reputation as a drunken playboy was becoming fodder for the papers. This wasn't Mexico. Good luck didn't grow on palm trees. Bad luck, on the other hand, it grew like mushrooms in the dark. Bad luck was everywhere, especially in the places you couldn't see. It hid in the shadows, just a block or two down the road, waiting to pounce. His hands were shaking. There was a commotion down the hall near the room where they'd brought the girl. He tried to listen to see if he could tell what was happening, or whether she was alive or dead, but it was no use. There were too many sounds, too many voices. And then there was one very loud voice right in front of him. Mr. Houston. John Houston turned to face the detective sitting next to him in the hospital hallway. Mr. Houston, suppose you tell me about it again, the whole thing. Start from the beginning and walk me through it one more time. John Houston knew what this dick was trying to do. He wanted to see if his story would change, but this was no grift. He wasn't trying to pull anything. So he did exactly what the detective asked, and he told the story one more time. It was late, it was dark. He was driving down Sunset. He was still reeling from his split with Dorothy, still feeling sorry for himself for getting kicked off the P.T. Barnum picture by Daryl Zanuck. Despite both of those things, however, he was completely sober. As he continued down Sunset, John drove deeper into Hollywood proper. The traffic picked up, a lot of cars for a Monday night. He merged into the right-hand lane. He put his foot on the gas. He was doing about 30. The light at the intersection at Gardner was green, and the woman came out of nowhere. At least, that's how it seemed. She stepped out from between two parked cars, obscured in the shadows. One moment she wasn't there, and the next she was caught in the headlights. She was wearing blue jeans, and John panicked. He slammed on the brakes. It all happened in a fraction of a second. The front end of his car hit the woman, 
hard. Her body was thrown up onto the hood. She smacked the windshield and then flew over the car. John watched her limp body roll into the street. He put his car in park and ran into the road to a soundtrack of squealing tires and blaring horns. And the woman wasn't moving. The blood was everywhere. John picked her up and carried her to his car. He laid her in the back seat and drove like a bat out of hell here to the hospital. The detective scribbled in a notepad as John Houston wrapped up his story for the second time. It was the same exact story he told the first time. John knew he wasn't to blame, that he wasn't at fault. He wasn't drunk. He was going the speed limit and the light was green. She came out of nowhere. But still, he was driving that car. He did hit that woman. And now she was in the hospital, still unconscious, fighting for her life. John Houston prayed that she would pull through. He waited for his father to show up and drive him home. Drive him anywhere but here. Minutes became hours, and the hands of the clock on the wall moved slow. A doctor emerged from the room down the hall. He delivered the news. She couldn't be saved. Her injuries were too severe. The woman was dead. The next morning, September 26, 1933, the story hit the papers. John Houston, an industry wannabe hot on the heels of two drunken car accidents, hit and killed Tosca Rulian. Tosca was a dancer and the wife of actor Raul Rulian, known in Hollywood as the Brazilian Valentino. John maintained his innocence. A grand jury agreed. He was quickly exonerated. Walter Houston worked his Hollywood connections to keep things on the down low. He appealed to Louis B. Mayer to make sure the gossip columnists were mum. He pleaded with Marion Davies to convince William Randolph Hearst, her not-so-secret lover and the most powerful media mogul in the world, to keep further stories out of the papers. Supposedly, the studio spent upwards of 400 grand to squash the story. But, as William Randolph Hearst himself once said, news is what people don't want you to print. Walter Houston's personal and private appeals to the scandal baron's better nature may have had the opposite effect. Shortly after John Houston was exonerated, Hearst's examiner ran a story with the headline, Why Should Auto Murderers Go Free? In the article, John was labeled as, quote, a menace to society, unquote. To make matters worse, Raul Rulian, widower of the woman who died in the accident, sued John for a quarter of a million dollars. John Houston needed to cool off. Hollywood was going to smother him. He could feel it. His divorce, his middling career, and now this was all too much. This was no adventure. This was a misadventure. This shit had consequences. He had to get away go somewhere where he wasn't a known quantity. Somewhere he could start over again, just like he'd done in the past. And soon, he got such an opportunity. But unlike the last time, it didn't come with $500 and a one-way ticket to Mexico. This time, John Houston received a lifeline from the last person he ever expected to hear from. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. That was the sound of the NutriSense biosensor that I've been wearing. How's everyone feeling out there? You guys looking to make a few positive changes to your health before we kick into the holiday season? Just kind of get a good base of like healthiness going before you stuff yourself with sugar and fat and all kinds of awesome food. 
Just the thought of trying to be more healthy is daunting to me sometimes. There are so many temptations. There's so much good, bad food out there. Okay, exercise is key. We know this, but it's not the only way of getting around the fact that health comes down to what we put in our body. That's why I'm excited about today's sponsor, NutriSense. NutriSense helps you analyze your glucose levels in real time, and it's helping me learn some very interesting things about how the choices I make when it comes to what I eat and drink affect me. NutriSense does this by tracking my glucose levels. And it turns out glucose levels significantly impact how your body and mind feels and functions. If you're feeling bad, I can almost guarantee you that your glucose level is gonna have something to do with it. So you wanna know, okay, if glucose affects how I feel and how I function, then how do we determine what our glucose levels even are? NutriSense has this great app. It allows you to not only monitor your glucose levels, but to calibrate and manage your levels through diet, exercise, and sleep. The app is easy. It's got these concise learning tools to help you better understand your glucose intake, how it's affecting you. It's got this in-range learning tool that I found to be super helpful. I'm a visual guy. I like the visual of it. It's basically a 12-step set of tips to understanding the glucose in your body with convenient diet and nutrition tools. They're going to help you adjust to eating more healthy. Uh, to make it even more effective, NutriSense includes one month of free board-certified nutritionist who's going to give you guidance and support. My nutritionist, Patrick, has helped me interpret the data that I'm getting, it answers my questions when I have them, provides suggestions even to help keep me accountable and in line with my goals. And my goals are to get healthy before the holiday season comes and I start to do a lot of unhealthy things, okay? I wanna start out with a good healthy base. <laughs> Before I start stuffing myself. And NutriSense is helping me do that, all right? It's gonna help me through the holidays as well, but we're not there yet, okay? We're, we're sort of in the pre-party phase of it. We're living in interesting times, guys. Hopefully we can use the power of information through NutriSense to help us live healthier and happier. So, to start decoding your body's messages and pave the way for a healthier life, visit NutriSense.com Badlands and get $30 off your first month and one month of board-certified nutritionist support. When they ask how you learned about NutriSense, make sure to tell them it was the Badlands podcast. John Houston's ex-wife, Dorothy, was living in London when she heard about the accident back in Hollywood. She still had love for John, just like he did for her. Even though the dissolution of their marriage led her to an increasingly dysfunctional relationship with the bottle, she knew all about living under that microscope in LA how they only really focused on you when you were at your lowest. She knew about the need to get out when that microscope's lens pushed down on you. And she knew it was John's turn to get out. And she knew she could help. She went to Gomont British, a London film production company whose owner was friends with Walter, and begged them to give John Houston a job. Unlike Walter's plea to Hearst, this one actually paid off. Gomont British offered John Houston a three-month contract to write scripts for their movies. It paid $300 a week, more than enough to rent a place in Chelsea and even start making payments on an MG sports car. Most importantly, it took him far away from the bad scene that was curdling back home. All things considered, it looked like John Houston had been dealt a pretty good hand for the first time in a long time. He was feeling so lucky that he bought a ticket in the Irish lottery. And but the handsome salary he was making was at least three times more than the British writers were getting paid. His co-workers hated him for it. Same for the producers at the company, who didn't like John's cavalier American style or his ideas. Even one that an up-and-coming British director named Alfred Hitchcock thought was pretty good. But Alfred Hitchcock didn't write John Houston's checks. 
and you didn't look a gift horse in the mouth. If John Houston wanted to keep making $300 a week, he needed to shut up and do what he was told. Problem was, shutting up really wasn't John Houston's thing, especially when someone else told him to do it. His response to his employer's warning was to put them on alert. Galmont British needed to start taking him more seriously or else he'd just quit. It was a bold move. It was brave or stupid. John wasn't quite sure. He soon found out. There was a knock at the door of the house he was renting. It was the postman. He handed John a registered letter. It was from Galmont British. He was fired immediately. He barely had much time to let the gravity of the situation sink in before he heard another knock at his front door. This time it was a telegram, the Irish lottery, the one he entered weeks back. He won 100 pounds. He needed the money, considering that he was out of a job and stuck in a foreign country. But Dorothy needed it more. She was a helpless drunk. She was in and out of the hospital, passing out with lit cigarettes burning holes through her clothes, and she could barely function. John wanted to help her like she had helped him in his time of need. And the only way he could do that was to use his winnings to buy her a one-way ticket back to LA where her family could take care of her. So John Houston put Dorothy on a boat and watched as it sailed into the distance. And once the boat disappeared into the horizon, he was officially left with no one. He had nothing, literally not even a penny to his name. He lost his house, he lost his car, he walked the streets of London in a daze. He wandered down the embankment and looked out over the River Thames. The sun was going down. The shadows were coming out. And this was the stuff dreams were made of. Not good dreams. Horrible, awful dreams. The kind of dreams where you see yourself living the rest of your life hand to mouth. Dead broke and far from home. Riddled with shame and guilt. You're a pariah. A menace to society. Your eyes are bloodshot. Your skin's gone pale. No one wants you. Hollywood will never forgive you for what you did to that girl with your car. Her husband won't either. Sure, the guy settled for less for a measly five grand out of the $250,000 lawsuit, but you don't have that kind of money. You can't settle your debts. You can't outrun them either. Debt collectors are good at their job, unlike you. And they'll find you, no matter where you go. All the way across the Atlantic, they'll track you down. And London will give you up the first chance it can. London can't forget you fast enough. You think you're a writer, an artist? You think you have one original thought in your brain? You've got nothing, nothing but hubris and pride. And your hubris failed you long ago and your pride is keeping you tethered here at the bottom. Your pride won't let you take the easy way out of this latest next fuck up. You are finished long before you even got a chance to start. You're a failure. John Houston woke up in a cold sweat. He looked out over the Thames and he squinted his eyes. The sun was rising. His back was killing him. The bench he'd slept on the last night did him no favors. He was exhausted, hungry, starving, and he smelled like shit. And the worst part though, even worse than the humiliation of living as a hobo in the embankment, was the realization that if you wanted all of it to end right now, if you wanted to go back to the way things were, if you wanted to be safely at home in Los Angeles, all he had to do was pick up a phone and call his father. That was fucking humiliating. Couldn't bring himself to do it. He wasn't about to go begging to Walter, which didn't mean he wasn't going to beg. Soon the embankment would come alive with people, Hyde Park too, and when it did, John Houston would pull out one of the few things he still had on his person, a harmonica, and accompany Eddie while he sang cowboy songs. Eddie Kahn was a Hollywood director who, just like John Houston, moved to London to make a movie. 
only to have the production company go tits up when he arrived. John and Eddie gravitated to each other in the way only the most desperate lost souls can. They got on like a house of fire. It helped that John had once written dialogue for one of Eddie's movies. They played their songs like a couple of real cowpokes around a campfire. The Brits walking by ate that American shit up. Some of them even took pity on the duo. At the end of each day, John and Eddie pocketed enough change to buy a few hard-boiled eggs, if they were lucky. That's what they were working on, manifesting their own good luck. That's why John Houston didn't pick up the phone and call his father. He wanted to earn this next lucky streak on his own. First, he earned the coins, and they piled up inside the hat on the ground at his feet. And then he earned the trust of a mutual friend, a screenwriter who occasionally fed John and Eddie and let them use the shower. And through that mutual friend, John heard about the opportunity to pitch a treatment for a new British film set in the world of race cars. The studio needed a writer and a director, a couple of guys who could work fast and cheap. And this movie was what they called Quota Quickie, the low-cost, low-quality picture that was made simply to compete with the flood of American films in the domestic market. The recommendation by their mutual friend got John and Eddie the gig. But it wasn't just a gig, it was a way out. And it came with an advance of 500 pounds. The racing movie, Death Drives Through, has a runtime of barely an hour and is largely forgotten to history. But it's the thing that got John Huston back in the proverbial driver's seat after a year and a half of self-imposed exile and destitution, and back to his home in the States. John Huston literally wrote himself out of the lowest moment in his life. California, 1973. The sound of hooves galloping through a row of fragrant orange trees grew louder. The film crew watched from afar. A white horse appeared in the distance. The rider was tall. He wore a white hat with a wide brim. He got closer and closer to set. As he did, the crew could hear him laughing and greeting the orchard workers in Spanish. Everyone on set stopped what they were doing and stared. Roman Polanski stopped shouting directions. Jack Nicholson stood there with his nose taped up and his mouth hanging open. Just like everyone else, Jack was in awe. A titan was approaching. A god on horseback. John Huston was certainly both of those things to Jack and to Roman and to every last grip and lowly production assistant standing in that orange grove. But John Huston was no actor. His father was the actor. John was the director. A director who accomplished what few others had recovered from bottoming out in London in his 20s and clawed his way to the top of American cinema's pecking order, all while giving a defiant middle finger to Hollywood. And in the process, he worked with the industry's biggest names, from Bogart to Brando, Newman to Connery, Marilyn to Liz, and even Ava Gardner. Despite all of that, John Huston once again needed money. He needed money because at 67, he still enjoyed the thrill that came with pressing his luck. In recent years, he racked up gambling debts that were as imposing as his frame and personality. He knew more debts were coming too. An impending split from his fifth wife would put the herd on his wallet. So he took a role in Polanski's Chinatown as Noah Cross, one of the cinema's great villains hiding in plain sight for a paycheck. But Chinatown was different from the other random movies he acted in. For one, 
it was clearly indebted to the film noirs of Hollywood's past, specifically to the Maltese Falcon, John Huston's own 1941 directorial debut. It also gave him the chance to act alongside Jack Nicholson, which meant he could fuck with the guy who was fucking his daughter, do it with Angelica hanging out on set. John got a perverse kick out of making Jack squirm when the cameras rolled and he said with that devil-may-care twinkle in his eye, are you sleeping with my daughter? John had different feelings when it came to being in the presence of Roman Polanski. It was just a few years since Roman's wife, Sharon Tate, and their unborn child were brutally murdered by members of Charles Manson's cult. It was all you thought about when you saw Roman in the early 70s. It was the elephant that never left the room. Seeing Roman always got John thinking about that awful massacre on Cielo Drive. And every time John thought about Cielo Drive and Manson, he thought about Eloise Hart, one of his many on-again, off-again lovers. Near the end of December 1968, when her daughter was home from college on Christmas break, Eloise Hart was awoken by the sound of a car idling outside her bedroom. The muffler rumbled low. She looked out the window and saw a black car in her driveway parked next to her daughter's car. A man shouted, let's go. Eloise saw him emerge from the darkness and jump into the idling car. She heard the car's engine come to life. The black car peeled out of the driveway and the taillights faded into the distance. Eloise's daughter was nowhere to be found at home. She was in that car and she'd been kidnapped. A few days later, her daughter's mutilated body was found about 30 feet off the side of the Mulholland Drive, down a ravine, two black eyes, throat slit, stab wounds in her chest and neck. And the killer was never found. But there were so many knife wounds, so many deep knife wounds on her body, all helter-skelter, that almost a year later, when Charles Manson was arrested for his role in the Tate-LaBianca murders, investigators couldn't help but draw similarities. It was never proven that the Manson family had anything to do with the death of Eloise Hart's daughter. But still, you couldn't help but think of one when you thought of the other. It was a shitty hand, the worst fucking luck. Eloise Hart had to live with those cards. Roman, too. It put it all in perspective, that there are such things as different levels of bad luck. John Houston, meanwhile, worked on manifesting his good luck, like taking acting jobs he wouldn't normally take in order to keep himself in the black. And returning to that secluded slice of paradise along the Mexican coast in order to stay out of trouble. All along, the jungle on one side and the ocean on the other. John Houston wasn't a failure or a success. He was just a man with a story to tell. A story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.